Amen. Amen. Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Psalms. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue one on the seat in front of you. You'll find uh, where we're looking at today on page 508. Page 508, Psalm 26. So I'm going to say a little bit more about us getting back into the Psalms. But if you're just joining us, we uh, just kind of concluded part of a series. We looked at Genesis 1 through 11, looking at the foundations of the gospel. And so for the next several weeks over the summer, we're going to be back in the book of Psalms, um, just kind of working sequentially through them. And that's what we like to do here. We like to just work our way through books of the Bible or through at least large sections so that we understand not just what's there, but how it fits together with the rest of what's there. And it also makes sure that we don't just kind of fall back into our greatest hits, the parts we like, and just skip over the parts, ooh, that's a little bit harder to understand or makes me a little more uncomfortable. We want, we value the whole counsel of God. He's given it all because we need it all. And so we want to know it all, love it all, believe it all, and obey it all. And so this morning, the part of the all that we are looking at is Psalm 26. So read along as I, as I read aloud from Psalm 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let me answer that question this morning. Why are we going back to the Psalms? We've done this for a few summers in the past, and we kind of just want to keep revisiting them. We're working our way through them. So why are we going here? Let me give you a few reasons. The first reason is, have you ever gone out to your car in the morning, put your key in, turned it, seen the lights kind of flicker, and heard the dreaded tick, 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 you all know what I'm talking about. When that happens, you know you're in trouble. You know that you can't get where you need to go, and you know that you can't do what you need to do because your battery is too run down. Now, the good news is it's not dead because those lights flickered and you heard something, but there's not enough in it to power your car. So what do you need in a moment like that? A jump. You need to hook up the cables to your engine and use another source of power to jumpstart your car. And for some of us, 
our hearts need a jump. Our faith and joy are not dead. There's still a flicker. There's still some kind of noise we hear, but there's not enough to get us going or keep us going. We need something to jumpstart our hearts. And that's one reason we have these psalms, is they give us the jolt we need to reawaken and empower our weak and struggling hearts. They bring our flickering affections back to life. So that's one thing we're asking God to do in our time together in the Psalms this morning. So if you're here and you're saying, man, I'm barely holding it together. I drug myself to church. Life is hard. Pastor, if you only knew the half of what I was going through, I don't know what you would say to me. And I'd say, well, I'll tell you what I would say to you. I would preach these Psalms to you. Because what we need this summer is for God to jolt our hearts back to life in Him. That's one reason we're going there. But the Psalms do more than just help restart rundown hearts. These 150 songs, that's what the Psalms are, they're songs, they are also given to help share and shape our thinking and feeling. To help share and shape our thinking and feeling. Now my guess is we all know the power of songs. They help put into words what we're experiencing. That's why we love music. We, they help us express the joy of love, the pain of sorrow, the confidence of a fight song, the heartache of longing. Songs give us words when we don't know how to share what's going on in here. And the Psalms do that as well. They help the people of God express what they're walking through. Whether that's hopes or sufferings, grief over sin, the joy of forgiveness, the gratitude of salvation, and the worship of God. They do all of that. They help us, they put words to the things that you feel down deep. You're like, I don't even know how to tell you what it is I'm feeling. God gave us words for that. They help us share. But songs don't just share what we feel, right? They shape what we feel. Earlier, when we sang, he will hold me fast, we're both sharing this truth of our hearts, saying like, yes, I do believe that, but it's also shaping us. Because when you sing those words and you mean it, and when you hear your brothers and sisters sing those words and mean it, guess what? That truth that he will hold you fast, that's shaping you, friend. It's changing the way you feel and think. Because songs have the ability to influence and teach us how to think, how to feel, and they, the Psalms do that in response to the whole fullness of human experience. And no other book in history has shaped and formed the hearts and minds of God's people more than the Psalms. Look at any generation of the church and you'll see this constant reliance upon the Psalms to shape and form their hearts and minds. Now we call this series, if you see on your bulletin, there's a subtitle, The Songs of Jesus. And we call it that for two reasons. It's not just so that we can throw the name Jesus onto it. One is, these would have been the songbook of Jesus. This would have been the playlist he listened to. This was the hymnal he sung from. Jesus would have sung these songs over and over again. If you're wondering, I wonder what Jesus listened to. He listened to these. And as a man on earth, these songs shaped Jesus. 
In fact, that's why he quotes from the Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament. Because they've been the soundtrack to his earthly life. As we jump back in this morning, though, we call them songs not just because they were sung by Jesus, but because they are also ultimately about Jesus. Now, you won't find his name in the book of Psalms. And when we say that they're about Jesus, we don't just mean that, yeah, there's a couple places that there's these really cool prophecies. I was like, oh, that's talking about when Jesus comes. Those are there. But what we mean when we say that it's about Jesus is we mean the whole thing. We mean that each psalm points us to Jesus as the true and full fulfillment of that psalm. He is the one about whom these songs sing. And he is the ultimate one by whom these songs are sung. So as we jump back into the psalms this morning, in Psalm 26... I was actually, at first, I was a little apprehensive. I thought, man, that feels like a weird place just to get right back in. Like, it's not something about starting at the beginning. Psalm 1, yeah, that makes sense. Or starting at the beginning of a book within, that makes sense. But Psalm 26, the more I studied it this week, the more I was grateful to find this is actually a great place to enter back into the Psalms. Why do I say that? I say that because most likely, we don't know for sure, But most likely, this psalm had to do with entering into worship. So as we enter back into the psalms, we're looking at a psalm that has to do with entering into worship. Most likely, this song is similar to Psalms 15 and 24. And in all these psalms, 15 and 24, and here in 26, there's this picture. The picture is of a worshiper coming to the tabernacle. This one in particular, I think maybe this was a pilgrim coming to one of the feasts, the annual feast, and he's come all this way, and now he's here at the holy place. But before he enters and goes into worship, there's this examination, so to speak, to see if he should be admitted. There's almost like this divine bouncer at the door saying, why should I let you in here? So you hear this in the other Psalms. Psalm 15 starts this way. It says, O Lord, Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? In other words, who gets in? And the answer is, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Psalm 24 says something similar. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Again, who gets in? The answer He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. In each of these, a question is posed. Who can rightly come before God in worship? Which tells us right off the bat, it's not just some willy-nilly, just just show up, do whatever, anybody, come on in. Who can rightly come before God in worship? Or maybe more to the point, The question that is posed is, can you come before God in worship? Now these questions are important because they help us. They help us guard against one of the greatest dangers in worship. One of the greatest dangers to our worship? Familiarity. We can become too casual about worship. Forgetting who it is we worship and how it is we can even come. Earlier we said 
draw near in awe and wonder. And if we're honest, sometimes we lose that awe and that wonder. And we reduce worship to something relaxed, easygoing. It's just we, we, down, we, we downplay it as much as we can to make it seem like, oh, there's nothing, there's nothing significant going on here. It's just a bunch of gathering of people. We're just hanging out. Yeah, we're going to sing some songs. It's like there's nothing sacred. But that's not how we are to come. Because as we come and worship, we come to the most glorious person and to the highest privilege in all of creation. And here, in Psalm 26, what we have is a worshiper approaching and showing us, how do you draw near? How do you do it? And what we see is that the psalm is framed at the beginning and the end with this word and with this idea of integrity. Do you see it there? Verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. And then down at the end, verse 11. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. So we know right off the bat, okay, that's framing this. This is about the worshiper's integrity. David, the writer of this psalm, he's building his case as one who is able to draw near based in part on his integrity. So we got to ask right away, what does it mean to have integrity? Here's I did a lot of thinking about that this week. And part of my problem at first was I had two competing definitions. And then I realized they're both a part of this. So here's the most helpful way I found to remember. What does it mean to have integrity? If someone has integrity, they do what is right and they do what is real. They do what is right and they do what is real. In other words, when I say they do what is right, they do what they should do. Like, they're not doing wrong, they're not sinning, they're not disobeying, they're doing what is right. And when I say they do what is real, I mean that what they're doing on the outside matches who they are on the inside. There's integrity between the, the life they claim to live and the life they actually live. They do what's right and they do what's real. So as David is unpacking what it looks like to worship with integrity, we're all confronted with this same question. And that question for us this morning is does your worship have integrity? Does your worship lead to doing what's right? And is your worship real? Here in Psalm 26, what we're going to look at is three characteristics of worship that has integrity. So these are our headers. We're going to look at it under. Worship that has integrity has nothing to hide. We're going to see that in verses 1 to 3. It has nothing in common with evil. We're going to see that in verses 4 to 8. And then in verses 9 to 12, we'll see that it has nothing to fear. Nothing to hide, nothing in common with evil, and nothing to fear. So first, let's see how worship with integrity has nothing to hide. Look at verse 1 again. He says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. So here, remember, David's the worshiper, and as David draws near to worship, he starts with a really unexpected request. He says, vindicate me. Literally what it says, David says to God, judge me. 
That's how he starts his psalm. Judge me, God. Now, normally, you and I, we are so hardwired to say, don't judge me. And David here is saying, judge me. See, we don't want to be evaluated or scrutinized. Like, that makes us instantly uncomfortable and defensive. And if we're honest, it's not just with other people. It's when we come before God, instead of asking God to judge us, too often, if we're honest, don't we feel like we have to hide or cover up? Maybe hold back a little something for fear of being found out what's really going on? The picture I had in my mind as I thought about how we tend to come before God is we're like kids who've broken something outside because we were playing with something we shouldn't be playing with and now it broke. But now we're trying to get back in the house past mom and dad so we're stuffing it under our shirts, stuffing it down in our pockets. And so we don't want mom and dad to get too close to us or to examine us too closely because we know that they might see what we're trying to hide. They might find the evidence of our disobedience. So we just got it tucked in the back of our shirt, being like, nothing going on here. And we just try to slip past them. And we can do that with God, too. Of, yeah, I'll, sh- I'll make sure you see me, but this, hey, God, everything's good. But that's not what David does. He invites God to inspect him, search him. He, he empties the pockets of his heart, so to speak, and says, here I am, God. See what's in me. This is the same thing he prays later in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. What David is doing is he's showing us that real worship begins with honesty before the Lord. It holds nothing back and it leaves no corner of our lives off limits to God. Instead, it invites God to judge us. And notice that he does so with a confident expectation that God will find in our favor. That's why the Bible's translated as vindicate me. In other words, show that I am indeed able to draw near. God, as you judge me, judge me and show that I am in fact able to come close. Now why is David so confident that he'll be accepted as a worshiper? Why is he confident that he'll be invited in? Look down at the verse. He says, For I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. David is inviting God to examine both what he's done and who he is. He says, God, see see what I've done, that it's right, and see who I am, that it's real. Now, this does not mean that David is sinless, but it does mean that his life is marked and characterized by real obedience and real trust. In other words, he's not faking it. But then he goes even further. He doesn't just say, judge me. He invites God. He says, prove me, try me, test me. And all three of these words had to do with refining metals. So to, you'd take a metal and you'd heat it up till it's basically boiling. And then what you would do is you would check its authenticity and you would remove any impurities that float to the surface to make it stronger. So what David's asking God to do is the same thing with his heart here. He's inviting God to test him, see that his love and his faith is genuine. It's real. Melt me down, God. See, turn up the heat. See what comes out, and you'll see that it's real. But he's also asking God to refine and purify his heart. 
And this is also part of worship that has integrity. Worship that has integrity opens itself up to God searching and it asks him to prove and purify our faith. In other words, it says, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. Peter tells us the same thing in 1 Peter 1. Listen to his language as he explains why these worshipers of Jesus that he's writing to have been grieved by various trials. He says, you've been grieved by various trials, if necessary, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, God is doing his vindicating work. He's doing it in Psalm 26, and he's still doing it in us. He's proving and testing the hearts and faith of his people. And we see from Peter that he's doing it through trials. He's turning up the heat. Things are getting harder. And so, Christian, this is why we are sometimes grieved with various trials. Because God is doing his revealing and refining work. He's revealing whether our worship has integrity or not. Whether it's real. And then he's refining it to make it purer and stronger. And that's what David is inviting God to do here at the beginning of Psalm 26. He holds nothing back and he submits himself to God's gaze. It's as though God has one of those TSA body scanners, right? That you step into at the airport. But instead of metal or explosives, this scanner is checking for worship that's real and worship that's not. And David steps in and says, see what's there, God. Vindicate me. Look at everything I have and everything I am. Show that my heart is really yours and my faith is genuine. And take away any sin that is exposed. Anything that shows up on your scanner that shouldn't be there, please get rid of it. So you can see that I am real and I want to do what is right. Now what gives David the confidence to invite God to get that close? What gives him confidence to step into that scanner, to say, to be fully known, to be vulnerable and transparent before God? Now, we might be tempted to think, if we're not familiar with him, think, yeah, that's easy for this guy in the Bible to say. He's probably one of those squeaky clean guys that, like, the worst transgression he's ever had is he didn't brush his teeth the full two minutes one day or something. Like, is that David? Is, is he a squeaky clean guy who has nothing to hide? Hardly. Keep in mind, this is the same guy who in Psalm 51 says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So how can a guy like that, a guy who's done some pretty hideous things, how can a guy like that dare to say to God, Judge me. Test me. Verse 3. For your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness in other words David can have the confidence to hide nothing from God because he is always mindful of God's unfailing love and he lives in reliance on his faithfulness 
He keeps the love of God fixed before his eyes as this ever-present reminder. It shapes how he does everything. It's as though he has this post-it note permanently in view that's affecting how he gets up in the morning, how he goes to work, sends an email, talks to his kids, watches TV, reads the Bible. He keeps God's steadfast love posted right there. It's as though he's constantly hearing the refrain, oh, how sure, how sweet, how strong, how vast his love for us. That's the soundtrack going in the back of David's mind, and it's the post-it note in the corner of his eye all day long. Because David wants to make sure that the truth that shapes his reality and his life of worship more than any other truth is who God is. And who is God? He's the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the steadfast love and faithfulness that David has in mind here. God says, let me tell you who I am. And David says, don't let me forget that. Do not, I'm going to keep that before my eyes all day long and that's going to, Help me walk in integrity. How can I do what is right and how can I be real? Because I know who you are. That is what gives a worshiper the confidence to hide nothing from God. So two questions before we move on. First, do you have the honesty and the integrity to say to God what David does? This morning, can you say to God, judge me? Judge me, God. Will you hold nothing back from God? But will you invite him to search you, to know you, to examine you, to see what's really there? Will you have the courage to stop pretending? Second, do you know the steadfast love and faithfulness of God? Friends, God has revealed them most fully to us in his son, Jesus. We know that God demonstrates his steadfast love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, you want to see my steadfast love? Look at the cross. And not just that, God proves his faithfulness by answering yes to all his promises in the same Jesus. He says, you want to see what my faithfulness looks like? Look at Jesus. You want to see my love? Look at him on the cross. So do you know his steadfast love and faithfulness? I invite you, whether you do or whether you've never seen it before, come gaze upon your Savior. Behold your great high priest. Draw near in awe and wonder. His cross has spoken peace. Keep Jesus and his love before your eyes. Real worship holds nothing back because it has nothing to hide. We've cast all our sins on Jesus. But I want you to think about this. Jesus knows every unchristian thought you've ever thought. I think that's especially probing to those of us who are Christians to think there are things I think that are unchristian. <laughs> and Jesus knows those thoughts. He knows every unkind word you've said every lustful look, every grumble of your heart, every unbelief, every temptation that you've given into. And if you are in Christ, 
He doesn't just know every one of those. He's paid for every one of those. Friends, that is the good news. He is what makes our worship acceptable. His steadfast love and faithfulness. Because of him, we can enter. So as we're being posed the question, how can you get in? The answer is Jesus. Because of him, we can draw near. So that now, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's what David's talking about here is I can come in, vindicate me, God, show that I'm real, show that what I do is right. Why? Because it's all banked on you. Because I keep your steadfast love and your faithfulness before me. And that's what I'm banking it on, not just in my performance, but in yours. So worship that has integrity comes boldly with nothing to hide because of Jesus. Now in the next section, in verses 4 to 8, David, the worshiper, shows that worship that has integrity has nothing in common with evil. And to do that, what he does is he shows us what real worship hates and what real worship loves. So look, look first at what worship with integrity hates. Verse 4. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Now, when David talks about not sitting with the wicked, he doesn't just mean like he's at a basketball game and the only seat is next to the wicked. He says, I'm not sitting there. That's not what he's talking about. Okay, what he means here is the same thing that Phil prayed for us earlier in the service from Psalm 1, where it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So what does that mean, to not sit with the scoffers? Or to not sit with the wicked. What it means is that David says, I'm not trying to fit in with them. I'm not trying to join them in their actions. I don't identify with them or want to be like them. In many ways, he's keeping himself separate from them. And notice what kinds of people he talks about here. There's two groups. First, he mentions men of falsehood and hypocrites. In other words, he wants nothing to do with people who aren't real, who are fake. While real worship has nothing to hide and invites God to search our hearts, these people put on masks to cover up who they really are. That's what a hypocrite is. And the word falsehood can also be translated as vain or empty. In other words, there's no substance to what they say. Their words don't match who they really are. They're empty words. They're men of emptiness. To them, worship is just a game. There's no real love, real trust, or real delight in God. They just show up to keep up appearances. They're not real. Now, who's the second pair? The second pair are those who don't do what is right. They're the evildoers and the wicked, the ones who do the things that oppose and displease God. And these, David says, he hates. Now again, in our day, our ears perk up and we, we get a funny feeling in the, in the back of our neck saying, wait a minute, in our day and age, we act as though hate is always a bad thing. 
But here's the inescapable truth. Hatred is part of love. You cannot love without hating. Because if you love someone, you will hate anyone or anything that seeks to do them harm. If you love your family, you'll hate the intruder who tries to break in and hurt them. In fact, the only real option to avoid hatred altogether is to be completely apathetic. In which case, if someone breaks into your home and attempts to hurt your family and you say, I don't feel one way or the other about this, I just, whatever. We'd say, you don't love your family. To love means necessarily to hate anyone or anything that seeks to do them harm. And David says he hates those who oppose God and harm others. Why? Because he loves God. And he loves his people. In Psalm 139, David says it this way. He says to God, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. They say things that are false and fake. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now there's part of us that bristles at that and says, I that makes me uncomfortable. We all do it. It's just we're not used, we do it with things that are petty and not with things that are precious. The things that should get our fist pounding the table and get us standing up out of our chairs and saying, do not treat my God that way. Not do not treat my candidate that way. Not do not treat my stance on that issue that way. And yet that gets us out of our chairs and some very hateful stuff comes out. But what about when they blaspheme and dishonor the name of your God? What if they dishonor the one who died for you? David says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And notice what's going on here. David is not just choosing who he wants to associate with based on who he gets along with better. Say, I'm going to sit with them because I, I we click. You know, they, he has a great sense of humor. I laugh at his jokes. He laughs at mine. I'm going to sit with them. No, it's not based on social preference. It's based on spiritual alignment. He is avoiding linking himself with people who would distract him from his relationship with God. People who would draw him away. People whose fundamental goals and views in life are at odds with him. Because what David knows is he knows that who we hang out with has a profound impact on us. One writer said it this way, and I thought this was so good. He said, tell me who you like, and I'll tell you what you're like. Tell me who you want to be with, and I'll tell you who you'll be. And David doesn't want to be like those who are fake and false and do what is wrong. He wants to be real and do what is right. He wants to have integrity. Now, I would be remiss if I did not be clear on this. Not aligning ourselves with unbelievers does not mean we don't spend time with them. Jesus, the one that we follow, the one that we love, the one that we want to be like, was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They ridiculed him because he did spend so much time with the people who were opposed to God. And we're going to have a whole class on how to love our neighbors. We are called to do that. 
Build relationships with them. Tell them about this Jesus and his great love for sinners like you and me. But we keep a healthy separation between us and them. And that is not because we're better than them. It's the opposite. It's because you and I are not good enough or strong enough to avoid being shaped by them. And real worshipers don't want to be shaped by the hypocrites and the wicked. So what's the alternative? Who can we be shaped by? Verse 6. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. David says, rather than sitting with men of falsehood and joining in the assembly of evildoers, he delights to spend time in worship and spend time with the people of God. The picture we get here, this is if the worship that's happening is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now what we know about this sacrifice is this wasn't one of the required sacrifices. You didn't have to do this on a regular schedule. You offered a sacrifice of thanksgiving freely. Of your, of your own choosing, of your own desire, just to simply show your love for God and your devotion to him. It was a way to express joy and gratitude to God for his goodness. And David says, that's what I'm doing. I'm not going to go be shaped by them. I'm going to come into your presence, and I'm going to just declare this. He's not just proclaiming his thanksgiving. Notice he does it aloud. That's an important word, I think. He's not just feeling thankful in his heart. And that's his little secret between him and God. No one else knows that he's thankful. No, no, he's proclaiming thanksgiving aloud. He's making it known with his mouth. He's talking about it. Can I just tell you how glad I am what God has done for me? He's singing songs about it. He's saying, let's just sing a song thanking God for what he's done. He's praying and thanking God in prayer. And as he does, he recounts all God's wondrous deeds. What this most likely means is that it probably includes both things in his life, saying, like, let me tell you what God has done for me, but it also includes God's great acts of redemption. Usually this phrase, wondrous deeds, would, would be shorthand for the Israelites to think of things like God bringing his people out of slavery, God leading them through the Red Sea, God sustaining them in the wilderness, God giving them a promised land, God driving out their enemies before them. And for us, so what does this look like for us to proclaim thanksgiving aloud? How do we tell his wondrous deeds? It means that when we do it, we tell the wondrous deeds of Jesus. How he came as a man. How he lived a sinless life. How he opened the eyes of the blind. How he set the captives free. How he died to free us from slavery to sin. And then how he rose to triumph over death. Not just that, but how he then ascended and is reigning and ruling over all things and how one day he's coming back to finish what he started. That's what we love to declare. That's what worshipers delight to be part of. And don't miss verse 8. We saw what a worshiper hates in verse 5. Now we see what he loves. Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Instead of being in the assembly of the evildoers, he loved being in the assembly of God's people. For David, God's house was a tabernacle. It was a tent. That was the holy place. But for us, the church is now where God dwells. 
Paul says in Ephesians 2 that in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are where he lives, friends. If you are in Christ, you are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So when we think how we would apply verse 8 to us today, how do you and I love the habitation of God's house? For us, that means we love the church. Not a building. Not a place. You guys. Me. It's a people. We love being with the people of God because that's where our God makes his dwelling. Friends, worship with integrity is marked by what it hates and what it loves. And it hates being joined to anything and anyone that will hinder its obedience to and joy in Jesus. But oh, how it loves to be with the people of God. And if we love to be with the people of God, we will make it a priority. Church will not be a casual placeholder on our calendar that we're happy to go to assuming nothing else comes up or we're just not too tired that week. It'll be our joy to gather together. Friends, I never want you to come to church dutifully, dragging yourself here against your own will. God does not want that. God wants to work in you such that you are like this saying, oh, how I love the habitation of your house. I love being with your people. We don't come, if you're here and you're just checking out Christianity, wondering why do these people do this every Sunday? Is it like a requirement, a box they got to check? No, it's we love being together. We love singing these songs because we love to tell the wondrous deeds. We love to proclaim thanksgiving aloud. We love being with our God and where our God is in his people. That's why we gather. Because we know, show me who you want to be with and I'll tell you who you'll be. I want to be like you guys. So many of you are my heroes. There's things about you that the Lord has done and is doing that I want to be like you. I want to be shaped by you, so I want to be around you. And that's what the family of God is. So the worship that has integrity has nothing to hide from God, nothing in common with the wicked, and finally we see that it has nothing to fear. And we see this in two contrasting pictures at the end of the psalm. Look first at verse 9. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. So earlier we saw that David was keeping himself separate from sinners in life, right? Well, now he asked God to keep him separate from sinners in judgment. When God's judgment comes against sin, he doesn't want to be swept away as in a raging river. Have you ever seen like a, a, a dam break or river break through levees and that water just comes gushing through? He says, don't let me be swept away with that. Instead, in contrast, He's confident that God will keep him on solid ground. He won't be swept away. He'll be on solid ground. Verse 11. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. And here in closing, what we see is David showing his commitment, his humility, and his confidence. 
He shows his commitment to continue walking in his integrity. He starts his whole thing by saying, I have walked. And now he's saying, I will walk. Come what may, he resolves he's going to do what's right and he's going to do what's real. But we also see humility. A humility in that he recognizes that it's not his integrity, ultimately, or his goodness that makes his worship acceptable. He needs grace. He needs redemption. David's not claiming to have it all together or to be sinlessly perfect. He asks God to redeem him and be gracious to him. Because worship that has integrity always recognizes our need for grace. That we're not good enough on our own. Our hope is not in our best efforts, but in God's plentiful redemption. And that is why worship that has integrity has nothing to fear. Because those who rely on God's steadfast love and faithfulness, those who ask God to be gracious and redeem them, will never be swept away in judgment. But notice where they end up in verse 12. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. In other words, the worshiper has made it in. He's in the great assembly. He says, my foot is standing where it wanted to stand. You've searched me and know me. I've gotten in. I've passed the test. And now I stand in the great congregation, worshiping my Redeemer with full integrity beside the fellow worshipers that he loves. But there's more. Because this psalm, as good as that all is, this psalm really shines and really pops when you put it on the lips of Jesus. When Jesus is the one saying, vindicate me, for I have walked in my integrity. Because Jesus was the worshiper with true integrity. He had nothing to hide. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He always did what was right, and he always did what was real. He really loved God with all his heart. He really trusted his promises. He really loved his neighbor as himself. In fact, he was the most real worshiper there's ever been. And God ultimately vindicated him. He raised Jesus from the dead, and Jesus then entered, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He entered now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So that now when we freely admit our sins and our failures, we don't fear being swept away in the judgment because we have a Redeemer. So now you and I can draw near in confidence to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And one day, friend, one day, we will get in. And we will join with Jesus in the great assembly. As Hebrew 2 says of Jesus, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. One day we will be in that great congregation. Because Jesus has gone before us and because Jesus is the true fulfillment of Psalm 26, we can worship with integrity. We can have nothing to hide. We can have nothing in common with evil. And we can have nothing to fear.
Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your son. Thank you that he is the true Psalm 26 worshiper. Thank you that there's never been integrity like his. He models for us how to keep your steadfast love and faithfulness before him and how to let that shape and condition and guide all that he ever did. Thank you that he both kept himself holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, as Hebrews 7 says, and yet at the same time was known as the friend of sinners. Help us to be like him in that. To not be joined to sinners, but to be fiercely committed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because our Savior kept himself separate, but also laid down his life for the sinners. And God, thank you that Jesus models what it's like to love the people of God. Help us to grow in our affection, in our delight. Lord, let brotherly love be genuine among us. Help us to be real. Help us do what is right. And help us look forward to the day we join our Redeemer in the great assembly. It's in his name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.